Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. Good evening, everybody. So good. You can be seated. So good to be here with uh, one of my Harvey Bay families, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just lovely to be a part of your worship service, and with Ross and Mary and the, and the team, just, um, I just, I love your place, I love this church, and I love everything that, that you do. If you'd like to follow actual Bible, Exodus chapter 20, uh, we'll get to that in just uh, a second. As Pastor Ross said, a um, couple things before we get started, after this is over, um, we do have a resource table set up there at the back with our teachings and audio and video, um, they're all in USBs, all right, and so the reason we do that is if you know us at all, um, you, you would know this to be true, but for those of you who don't know, um, we use 100% of the profit from that to take care of the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages that look after children with mental disabilities in China. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we could do our part to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. Um, now, since the last time I was here, it's been exactly a year. Um, since the last time I was here, we've uh, put out three brand new ones. Um, I finally finished my whole series on the book of Revelation. Uh, the reason is is because I got too embarrassed for words for what particularly Pentecostals were saying about that book. And then they were going on the internet, and it was like a team of dipsticks got together and thought, <laughs> how can I explain this in the worst way humanly possible? And so I thought, you know what? I'm not going to fight them. I'm just going to preach through it and let the best narrative win. So, uh, so you can pick that up back there. If you're interested in the book of Revelation, it's, it's back there. I just finished um, my series on the Letters to the Seven Churches, and that completes the series. I also, uh, church leaders were asking me to deal with the sex issue, right? And so this is going to sound like I'm making a joke, but my master's degree is actually in sex, okay? I have a master's degree in clinical psychology with an emphasis on sex and sexuality. So I am a theoretical expert, okay? Now, now in, in practice, pretty much crap. But in theory, no one's better than me at that. So, and so I put together an 11-part series on sex and sexuality to help us deal with things in a more profound way. Uh, somebody picked it up the other day and said, how do you talk for 11 sessions on this? I was like, well, it's not a technique manual. Uh, that, that, that would be four minutes long. It's actually... It's actually a discipleship aid that's meant to help us approach that with, with better questions. Um, also, I, I just finished, uh, Pastor Wayne Elkhorn um, invited me and um, was so gracious to me. He had me do three Monday nights in a row uh, for two hours each time, so six one-hour sessions, along with him interviewing me about how to approach the Bible in a more reasonable way. How do we do it in a more meaningful way? And so we put some things together for that. If you're interested in that, that's all right there, along with a whole bunch of other stuff. So please come back there. Put, let me put something in your hands that will change the way you look at God. You put something in our hands that helps us feed, close, shelter, educate, mentally handicapped kids. That's a pretty good deal. Um, the only thing I would ask is that if you don't want anything, God bless. I'll see you next time. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow night. Um, if, if you know you're going to grab something, would you do so in the first 10 minutes? The reason is, is I have to tear it down and take it to Maribor for tomorrow morning. And then I got to tear that down and bring it back here tomorrow night. So if you could do that pretty quickly. Uh, the, the only other thing I'll say is um, tomorrow night I've put together something very special. So I'd ask you to put aside an hour and 15 minutes of your life and come back and, and, and visit us tomorrow and, and bring somebody with you. Um, I promise you I've put something aside that will change your life. If it doesn't, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, I'll pay you back for what whatever the ticket costs to come, all right? So whatever, whatever they're charging you to come, I'll just give it back to you. It's fine. So it's a totally risk-free sort of uh, proposition. So my job is to open the Bible tonight. I tell you that really seriously. Anytime you do that, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? 
And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And anytime we do that, we want Jesus to get bigger. We want the cross to work better. We want the resurrection to be central. We want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience tonight. I want to talk to you about the word Pentecostal. Um, the reason is, is because all you have to do to ruin a good word is to attach toxic images to it. Because words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. And so all you have to do to a good word is attach a toxic picture and it becomes not good. I'll give you examples. I'm going to say something true, but it will definitely create an untrue imagination. So here's the true statement. One day you'll face Jesus and he will judge you. That is true. But for most Western people, we picture a courtroom. And like Jesus is like putting our life on display. I remember when I was seven, my Sunday school teacher told me one day I'd face Jesus. He put my whole life on a giant screen for everybody to look at, right? Which leads to this question, how mentally unhinged do you have to be to say yes to a relationship to someone that tells you beforehand they're going to publicly shame you? That's first. Second, how boring can you make heaven? Heaven sitting around watching people's lives? That would be terrible. My life's not that interesting now, right? Imagine watching a seven-year-old's life. That would be frankly horrible. Plus, 13.7 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. That would be frankly terrible. Strap in, everybody. Next up, Methuselah, right? It would just be terrible. And here's the problem. The, the problem isn't that it's not true. One day you'll face Jesus and he'll judge you. The problem is, is that in Hebrew, the word judge is not a court official. It's someone anointed by God to set you free. And you already knew that. There's a book in the Bible called the book of? Yeah. Yeah. Those people aren't courtroom officials. They're people specially anointed by God to set people free. So when I say you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you, what I mean is that finally you'll be in the full presence of the one finally and fully anointed by God to set you free from everything that's ever held you back. See, so it's, it's, it's saying the same thing but the different picture. If you Google this church, it says a Pentecostal church, in Harvey Bay. That, 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 doesn't really, that doesn't really matter. What, what matters is how that word has been toxified. Like, I got interested, because it doesn't matter what the word is. What matters is how people picture that word working. The word Christian is the same. The word Christian is beautiful, but it's lost a lot of its beauty because the word Christian and the word Pentecostal got hijacked by 2% of lunatics. So let me just tell you what Christians and Pentecostals are not. Pentecostal Christians are not climate experts. Just because you're a Christian does not qualify you to speak to meteorology, right? Christians and Pentecostals are not sex experts. They're not, obviously, right? Pentecostal Christians are not health experts. Just because you're a Christian does not make you a medical expert. I'll prove it to you. If you had surgery tomorrow, would you want your doctor to have went to medical school or Bible school? Thank you. Christians are not health experts, political experts, climate experts, theology experts, and certainly not sex experts, and nor are we supposed to be. Christians are supposed to be experts in how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, and especially how Jesus applied Scripture. Christians aren't called to be right about singular verses. Christians are called to fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you because that's how Jesus taught us to apply Scripture. 
Like, I, like somebody told me the other day, well, I'm going to live by the whole Bible. I'm like, no, no, you're, no, you won't. You're not going to put your neighbor to death if you catch him working on Saturday. Come on. Nor should you. Even though there's a verse. The reason is, is because Christianity is about applying that scripture the way Jesus applied it, which is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Which leads me to the word Pentecostal. I got curious about this. I got burdened by it. Because there's some lunatics on the internet hijacking the word Pentecostal. Pentecostals are not amateur predictors of doom. We're not, nor are we called to be. I just got curious. I, I, I started, I, I speak all over the spectrum. I, I did the Seventh-day Adventist National Conference one time. I did a Catholic thing. I've done a Baptist thing. I've done an Anglican. I've had to wear a robe before. Um, I, I've done the ACC State Conference. I've done a Quippers National Conference. I'm like, I've done some stuff, right? And, and, across, and across the board. But I got curious. So what I started doing is when I went to Pentecostal churches, I would just pull, I did informal surveys, very informal. Let me explain how informal. I walked up to people and asked them, Okay. And I just said, hey, are you a Pentecostal? Yes. What's that mean? What's Pente- what, is, what is Pentecostal? What does that mean? You would not believe. I mean, n- almost no one knew what it was. These were real answers. We're the loud worshipers. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, turn up the volume, man. I, I mean, I guess, right? A couple, a couple of the answers really bothered me. One was, we're the true worshipers. As opposed to the other's fake worship. Like, what are you talking about? We're the ones full of the Spirit. Are you? Are you? Are you a tongue-talking jerk? <laughs> and, and what about N.T. Wright, the Anglican Bishop of Durham? Is he not filled with the Spirit? Like, what, what are you talking about? Right? I, I heard, I heard we, we're, we're the ones waiting on the end times. What? So Pentecostal Christians are the ones sitting around waiting for what they think is the end of the world. That's none of that's compelling, and none of that's true. So I want to talk to you about that. I want to recapture the beauty of what it means to be a Pentecostal Christian. What you might find is whether you label yourself Pentecostal or not, you might be the most Pentecostal person in the whole room. See, the word Pentecostal finds its roots not in Acts chapter 2, by the way. We're going to get to that in a second. It finds its roots in, in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is obviously, we all know what, this is Tuesday night, everybody, anybody comes to church on Tuesday night, I'm assuming that, that I can do some teaching here, right? So Exodus 20 is where Jesus, where Jesus, where God gives the Ten Commandments, right? It's the giving of the Ten Commandments, a famous sort of passage of Scripture. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, right? That, that, that one, right? And, and so for us, we call it Ten Commandments. In Jewish culture, they don't call it Ten Commandments. Right? And they sort of own that culture. And I don't have a, look, I have a series on the back table there called the Ten Commandments. I have no trouble calling it Ten Commandments. I just want everybody to understand in Jewish culture, they don't see it as Ten Commandments. They see it as a 10 word ketubah, a 10 word marriage proposal. They see it as an offer of relationship between God and a group of slaves. They see it as an offer of relationship, a consent first. As Paul said it in Romans 5, that God showed us he loved us even when we were hostile to God. God showed us he loved us by dying. In other words, the God revealed in Christ says, I love you first. Now, if I was to say the Jewish culture sees the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal, your question should be, why? Why would they see it that way? I'm glad you asked. 
In Exodus, the book of Exodus is organized and outlined along a five-step marriage process that's available in every ancient Hebrew culture. So let me look at, let's look at that, and then I want to bring it forward. If you bring that first slide up for me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And God spoke all these words, not commands, words. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. So what we call the Ten Commandments actually starts with an affirmation of love, not a condition for it. They call it a ten-word ketubah. Now, in ancient Hebrew relationships, all relationships in that world went through a five-step process. Let me show you the five steps. Next slide. So the five steps are laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and chupa. Now, I want you to get into this with me, and this church has a lot of energy, okay? So I'm going to say the word. I want, you te- I want to teach it to you. We're going to repeat it with some Go Harvey Bay, uh, Marone's Gusto, okay? Whatever, whatever you like to do, right? So the first word is laka. Let's say that together. Ready? Go. Laka. Now, that's a good amount of energy. Great. Perfect. The second one is, it, the, the S is like staccato, so it's like Segula, right? So let's, let's, let's try that. Ready? Go. Segula, right? The third one is mikvah. Let's try that one. Mikvah. The fourth one in the K is staccato. It's like ketubah, right? Let's try that. Ready? Go. Ketubah. And then the last one is hupa. So the five steps of an ancient Hebrew relationship was laka, segula, mikvah, ketubah, and hupa. And yes, that is what you're thinking. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a parable, a completely made-up story with nothing literal about it, but it's full of truth, so that I can illustrate what these five words were. So in my made-up story that has no truth at all, I'm dating somebody, okay? So let's say I'm dating somebody, and for the sake of tonight's example, let's name her Pam, right? So Pam and I are dating, and Pam and I go through all those awkward things that dating couples go through. If you're old enough to remember how awful dating was, right? It's, it's that, right? Dating, you go through like, you go through all these phases and then you face something called limerence. Limerence is in psychology is the involuntary rush of dopamine in your brain when you're in the presence of somebody. It causes addiction. This is why in the early stages of dating, you can't wait to get off work so you can go spend seven hours with them, sleep two, and then have to go back to work the next day. This is why when you're in the early stages of dating, you can talk for five hours on the phone and it feels like 10 minutes, right? Somebody says, how's it going with Jim? Oh, it's awesome. We talked for four and a half hours the other night, and it felt like 10 minutes. Now, when you're first dating like that, four and a half hours sounds awesome. If you've been married 20 years, a four-hour conversation sounds like hell, right? But, <laughs> but, but back then, right? And then, and, then every, and then you go through the phases where no one's really being themselves, right? Like, like, seriously, if you've been married quite a long time, I want you to think about this for a second. Every woman in this room who's been married quite a long time can still remember their first date. Now, don't panic. The men can't, and it's not because we don't love you. It's because we don't remember all that crap, okay? <laughs> but but if, you, if you think back to your first date, knowing what you know about your husband now, Did he dress like he actually wanted to? No. Why? He's trying to impress you. Did he order the food he actually wanted to? No. Why? He was afraid of not belonging to your world. He probably ordered a half a grilled chicken breast, some rice pilaf, and some broccoli. And even as it was coming out of his mouth, he's like, what am I doing? You go back to that same restaurant 20 years later, and what's he order? I want want 20 fried chicken wings, a large french fry, and a beer, right? 
And you're like, God, you're disgusting. Like, what's wrong with you? He's like, well, you're stuck with me now, right? So it's, you're stuck with all this, right? So Pam and I are dating, and it's going well. And at some point, we have a chat. That chat's like, hey, is this going somewhere? Are we going to just date forever? Or is it, you see this going somewhere? So we, we decide we see it going somewhere. Well, once we do that, the word Pam would be longing to hear from me is laka. Laka was the initiation of our relationship is now serious. So we go on a date to a great restaurant in Harvey Bay, Thai Diamond, right? <laughs> And she gets the green curry, Thai hot. And I'm like, that's a brave choice for a date. I like a woman like you, right? Like who orders extra spicy curry on a date? You're asking for some trouble, right? So afterwards, I take her to her door. I hold her by the hand. And I say, Pam, laka. Well, she could barely contain her excitement. Why? Well, if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can one day have a body like this. She goes in. She calls her three best friends. He said, la to me. He said, la to me. Oh, yeah. He said, la ca. Facebook status change. He said, la ca. Now, <laughs> la ca means to take as one's own. Basically, will you be mine? So there's this family. Guy named Abraham, son named Isaac, son named Jacob, 12 children. 11 of the 12 children sell their brother into slavery into Egypt, only to later need him to save them from a famine that hit where their family was living. And that brother took compassion on them and gave them a piece of land in Egypt. And then they started procreating. <laughs> and they had lots and lots of babies. And then they ended up enslaved by Pharaoh. And then 430 years later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses, um, who gets them out of slavery and into freedom. It's the entire book of Exodus in 30 seconds there. Anyway, so which is awesome and terrifying. What do you do with a God that all you know about him is that he's all-powerful, but you know nothing about his heart? You know nothing about his character? I just rescued you from slavery, bro. Now I'm calling that chip in. When he calls that chip in, what's he going to want from you? Like, what's his line? Is he going to want us to cut ourselves, sacrifice our kids? Like, you would have no idea. If all you know is this God is powerful, but you have no idea what this God's heart is like, man, that is good news, but yet terrifying. And then this is the first thing God says. Next slide. Next slide. Yeah, Exodus chapter 6. And I will free you from being slaves to them. And I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own. The word is laka. Well, you didn't have to explain to these people, this is wedding talk. This is relational talk. The, the, the concept would have been, hold on, did God just say laka? Is he wanting relationship? Like, he got us out of slavery. What does he want in return? Evidently, the only thing he wanted in return was relationship with you. Unbelievable good news. Laka. Back to our five words. I'm dating Pam. I say laka. Well, the next word she'd be longing to hear would be 
Segula. Now, you women will understand this. Men won't so much. But how long after I say laka does the, does the excitement of laka last? Not long. Seriously, three weeks later, her friends would be like, has he said Segula yet? He hasn't said Segula yet. Do you think he has a commitment problem, right? And Pam's like defending me. Pam's like, shut up. He'll say Segula when he's ready, you know, right? So one night we're on a date. She gets spicy lamb vindaloo. Again, incredibly brave choice. I, I, I take her to her door. I hold her by the hand. I say, Pam, Segula. Well, again, she can't contain her excitement. Why? I mean, come on. Hey, you sleep in and drink Coke. You too could have a body like this. She goes in. She calls her three best friends. He said Segula to me. He said, yeah, he said Segula to me. Facebook status change. He said Segula. Now, Segula is Laka 2.0. Laka is will you be my own? I want to take you, I, again, it's 2022, I get it, women today are like, what, you going to take me, right? It was much more endearing than that, right? It was more like, it was more like, will you be mine, right? So, same thing with this word, segula, next slide, segula means treasured possession. Again, I get it, 2022, what, you think you own me, right? I, it's not that, it's more, it's, it's more special, like, laka is will you be mine, segula is Will you be the most important person in my whole world? It would be that. So this group of slaves, in Exodus chapter 6, they hear, Laka. Exodus chapter 19, same group of people. Here's what it says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. The word is segula. Again, a relational term, but again, terrifying. If you keep my covenant, what's the question? What's your covenant? Like, what, when you call this chip in and you tell us what you expect, what's going to be in that thing, right? Again, all we know is that you're powerful. You're using relational language, which is nice. Gods don't use relational language towards humans. Are you kidding me? That's nice. But again, keep my covenant. What's in it? What exactly are you going to want from us? Back to the five words. So once I say laka, once I say segula, the next word she wants to hear is mikvah, mikvah. Now, I'm 46. Um, 25 years ago when I was of dating age, there was some mystery involved in when someone was going to ask someone to marry them, right? It's, it's, it was, it, you know, it goes something like this. You know, girl, girl, you think tonight's the night? And she's like, I don't know. I hope it's tonight. You know, what makes you think it's tonight? Well, you know, he booked a $140 a plate steakhouse, and he normally takes you to Nando's, right? So, I, you know, he normally is like a Nando's sort of subway budget. Now he's taking you to this nice place. I think tonight be the night might be the night. She says, I know. I hope tonight's night. And there was all this mystery involved, right? Now there's no mystery because of social media, right? Right, listen, if your boyfriend drives you to the base of a mountain, tells you beforehand to be dressed up, drives you to the base of a mountain where the mountain runs into the ocean, and you get there and there's already a photographer booked, <laughs> today's your day, right? <laughs> In this day, there was zero, 
None. Zero mystery about when someone was going to be asked to be married. Here's what would happen. You said mikvah. Mikvah was a three-day notice. In three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me, right? It was a three-day. Hey, I want you to be ready. No surprises. Three days, I'm asking you to marry me, right? Now, here's the thing, right? I have preached some version of this all over the world, and especially in very large women's conferences, okay? This isn't the exact version of it, but I've preached a version of this in a basketball arena full of women, okay? And I'm telling you, it always goes the same. 4,000 women, and you go, laka means my own, and you can hear it. Segula means special treasure, and you can hear it. Mikvah, however, is far less romantic. Mikvah, next slide, is go wash. Girl, you need a bath. Your breath is stinky. Mikvah was a three-day notice. It was, hey, I'm going to ask you to marry me in three days, so wash for three days. That way, you're clean when I ask you to marry me, and I can touch you. You see this all over the Bible, okay? The most overkill is in Esther when it says, she bathed in perfume for a year before she went in and saw her husband, which I think we could all agree is overkill, correct? Listen, if you need to bathe in perfume for a year before you go in to see your husband, you need a doctor, okay? Like, girl, you are hiding something, okay? But now this, it's a, it a three-day, come on now. It's a three-day notice, right? This is Exodus 19, verse 10. Exodus 6, laka. Exodus 19, verse 5. Segula, Exodus 19, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Mikvah. In other words, three days from now, I'm going to ask you to marry me, and I want you to be clean and ready. Can you see why the ancient Jews saw this as a marriage proposal? It's right in line. Because... What happens three days after Exodus 19? Exodus 20. I know. Boom. Right? Exodus 20, the 10-word ketubah. Next slide. So let's go back to our five words. So what I'm going to do in my made-up story is I'm going to explain ketubah and hoopah together, and then we'll look at the scriptures, okay? So I've said laka, I've said segula, I've said mikvah. Three days after mikvah, I'm asking Pam to marry me. And here's how that would have happened back in these days. You would... See, to us, a marriage proposal looks something like this, okay? For them, a marriage proposal looks more like this. What we would do is we'd sit at a table, and we'd write a ketubah. A ketubah was a marriage contract or an agreement. It was like, okay, these are the rules that are going to define how we're going to engage with one another, how we're going to relate. And here was the rule. I could put anything in the ketubah I wanted. She could put anything in the ketubah she wanted. As long as we agreed, because how can two walk together lest they be agreed? And we would have our fathers there. Our fathers were there for witness and wisdom. To say, no, it's not going to work like that. They were there to witness it and to bring wisdom to the situation. Once we finished our ketubah, that became the marriage proposal. Like, based on this, will you marry me? 
So the proposal was when I stood and faced her, I would say, instead of, will you marry me? I would say, will you marry me? Right? In other words, based on this agreement we just wrote. Because once we were married, if we broke that basic agreement in an unrepentant pattern, it was called marital unfaithfulness. Okay? Marital unfaithfulness was not cheating. It included cheating. But marital unfaithfulness was any unrepentantly patterned break of this agreement we just made. I would say, will you marry me? And she would say, yes. And then pay very close attention to this language. You're gonna, this is going to sound very familiar. I would then say, great. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And she would say, well, when are you going to come back to receive me unto yourself? And I would say, I do not know the day or the hour, but when my father approves the wedding chamber I'm building for you, he'll send me back to receive you unto myself, but be watchful and ready with oil in your lamp for my return. Does that sound familiar? Like Jesus talks like that. It's like, is God still wanting relationship with us, right? Then I would go to prepare a place for her. Now, this is weird for us because when our kids get married, they leave home, right? Hopefully, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to be rude, or, but I will be blunt. If you're 34 and married and still living at home, your parents are ready for you to leave, okay? But, but in those days, they couldn't. You couldn't afford your own place. It's ridiculous. Families shared compounds. I've seen them. And I don't know, a house in those days would be maybe as wide as this stage, maybe, maybe a little narrower. There'd be a center hallway, and oh, this is rustic, but just room, 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 room. In my father's house are many rooms, right? And the front room on the street was your family business, because that's where people could walk by. And then the older, the older people lived in the front, then the more middle-aged people, right? Now, it's, don't think too old. I mean, the average age of death in Jesus' day was 32, okay? So, so till death do us part was more doable, okay? So, <laughs> you know, like, you got to be very careful who you marry. You got to live with them to 84 now, okay? <laughs> and then, then the youngest people that were getting married would be, so if I'm getting married, I got to build a room on my father's house. Because you want reasonable lodgings. And so the way it would work is as you aged, you moved to the front of the house. And then when you died, you got moved out of the house, right? And so, so I, I would build an extra room on my father's house. My father would approve it. Essentially, now this is reasonable lodgings for a newly married couple. It's a new room on the house. Then I would go back and return for Pam to receive her unto myself. Then we would go and we would have a wedding, a chuppah, at the place. A chuppah was a marriage altar. It, was, it literally was covered in God's presence. But a marriage altar in those days was one of these. Every wedding you've ever been to in your life had some version of a chuppah. Mostly now they stand under archways. But something that symbolizes... This union is being witnessed by something bigger, right? It was that idea. But in the, in the rustic days, it was just one of these. And what they would do is they'd put four sticks in the ground, and then they would take the tassels and tie it around the sticks, and it would make this canopy, a hoopa canopy, over the top of them. And so you would do all these beautiful things 
in front of everybody underneath the hoopah. But at a wedding, there was always two hoopahs. There was one hoopah in public and then a second hoopah in private. So what they would do is they'd, around the marriage bed, they would put four sticks in the ground and they would stretch this out over the marriage bed. The reason is, is when marriages are consummated, it needs to be witnessed. But since that is not a great spectator sport, <laughs> what they would do is they would stretch this over the marriage bed so that when the marriage was consummated, it was done so under the hoopah, or under the presence of God. The presence of God was the, was the witness. So here's what would happen. I'd bring Pam. We'd stand under the hoopah do our wedding stuff, and then I would take Pam to the door of the marriage bed where the marriage room is. And this is, pay close attention to this language, I would pick her up. In those days, they picked their brides up and they carried them in. We still do that in some cultures today. It's called carrying them under the threshold, right? It's a good idea for some. Others wouldn't recommend it, right? It's like, I'll give you a piggyback. All right, so, right? So I'd pick my bride up. By the way, the word to pick your bride up is where we get the word rapture from. To pick your bride. Rapture is not about going somewhere else. Rapture is being caught up into the full presence of your groom. Then we would go in there. This, gets a, this is going to get a little awkward because we're very private about our sexuality. Back then, they couldn't be. They all lived in the same place. So, so I, we, we'd go in there. And they'd shut the door, and we'd consummate the marriage underneath the hoopah. And they just waited for us to be done. Right? But remember, we're 13 years old back then, right? So like, you know, 40 seconds later, here, we're ready, we're done. Right? And then you'd have a wedding party. That's the five steps of a Hebrew wedding. So... This group of people, Exodus chapter 6, Laka, Exodus chapter 19, Segula, Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, Mikvah, Exodus chapter 20, Ketubah, the marriage proposal. Check this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. So the first line of the marriage proposal, can you imagine the fear? Like, he's calling his chip in. What's he going to want from us? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. First line of the Ten Commandments is an affirmation, and it has three words in it. Anuki, Jehovah, Elohim. I am the Lord your God. But you could say, I am the Lord your God with two words. Jehovah, Elohim. So the first word of the marriage proposal is a word that doesn't belong. And that word is Anuki, which tells you it's pretty important. Now, ancient Hebrew is all pictures. All pictures. So every one of those letters corresponds to a picture. The A is an ox head going into a yoke. means the authority to carry something. The N is fish multiplying. It looks like a crescendo. One becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. The CH is a hedge or a fence. And the Y is an upraised hand. It means to praise, surrender, consent to someone else's involvement, right? So it's, it's, it's Yudah, where we get the word praise from. So you got the uh, ox head into a yoke, uh, a fish multiplying, uh, a hedge or a fence, and then an upraised hand. So when the early people saw this, this was the first word of God's marriage proposal to them. Next slide. 
your authority is multiplying inside the hedge of praise and submission. In other words, I'm here to make you bigger. I'm committed to making you better. If you read the Ten Commandments as a marriage proposal, it's just infinitely better. Hey, don't have any other gods before me. In other words, if we're going to be married, I'd like to be the only one. Is that fair? Oh, don't have idols. In other words, if we're going to be married, could you put the pictures of your old boyfriends away? Kind of hurts my feelings, yeah. Um, hey, here's an idea. Let's take one day in seven and just spend it together. When was these people's last day off? Never. Slaves. No person listening to this going, oh, he's putting rules on us. Are we going to have to take a day off? No, they'd be like, oh, did we? In our new world, we get a day off? It's unbelievable. That is just brilliant. Oh, here's another good one. Don't kill each other. It's a good idea, right? But, but wait a minute, hang on. You imagine being a slave hearing that? Hold on, I just want to make sure I understand this. In our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't kill us? No. In Egypt, in Egypt, was it illegal for a slave owner to kill a slave? No, because they weren't people. They were property. Hold on. In our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't kill the weaker people. The weaker people's lives are protected too. Yes. It's unbelievable. Hey, here's one. Don't sleep with each other's spouses. Pretty good idea. But wait a minute. If you're a slave, hang on. So in our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't rape our wives? No. How many times would an Israelite slave girl have been raped by an Egyptian slave owner? A lot. It just happens all the time. It happened in African-American slavery in the 1800s. Sometimes if you had money, you would pay the slave owner for the right to watch this kind of thing. I mean, like it was sick stuff. Hang on. So in our new world, my life is protected and my wife is protected. Yes. Oh, here's one. Don't take each other's things. What? Hang on. In our new world, the biggest, strongest people can't just come in and steal our stuff? No. I just want to make sure I get this right. So in our new world, my life, my wife, and my stuff are protected, and we all get a day off. Yes. It's got to be the greatest thing ever. This is like Australian, New Zealand culture 3,500 years ago. This was unthinkable. Lower class people's lives protected from the upper class people wanting to hurt them because this God is a God that is one God holding the whole thing together. This is unbelievable. But weddings don't stop with ketubahs. They culminate with chupas. This is, next slide, this is, next slide, yep. This is the covering of God's presence. This is Exodus 20 verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, and they heard the trumpet, and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They're standing at the base of the mountain, and the whole mountain covers them in the presence of God. Hopa. And it's a weird sentence. It says, they saw thunder and lightning. How do you see thunder? You can't see thunder. And it's not like the author doesn't know how to write heard. This should say they saw lightning and smoke and they heard trumpets and thunder, but it doesn't say that. It says they saw thunder and lightning and smoke and they heard a trumpet. How do you see thunder? Well, if you just go look that word up, the word is kole, K-O-L-E. Kole, everywhere else, is voices. 
or languages. The word lightning is glorified fire. It's the same exact two words that Moses said God spoke to him out of the fire of the burning bush. So I want you to follow me here. The presence of God covers them. And they look up and they see tongues inside fire sitting above their head. What would the tongues have been saying? Will you marry me? The Talmud says that on this day in history, God proposed, it uses the word proposed, proposed to all of creation by using 70,000 tongues of fire that went out as far as the eye could see. 1857 in Rangoon, Burma, an English sociologist was studying the Karen people and he said, who is your God? And they said, we serve a God named Yava who proposed to us thousands of years ago with language of fire from the sky. You can read about that in Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts. In other words, God was always reaching out to people before we ever got there. Now, if you're married, what do you do every year to celebrate the day you got married? It's called celebrating your anniversary. It's a day you set aside every year to remember how you used to feel, you know? It's like, <laughs> like remember when we used to talk for four hours? Yeah. So that's what God does here is he institutes a yearly celebration on this exact day. This exact day, they're commanded to do no work and celebrate a feast. And that feast is called Pentecost. Pentecost was the yearly celebration of this marriage proposal. And what's weird about Pentecost is it's all about this. This is a leavened loaf of bread. Everywhere else, it's bring unleavened bread, not Pentecost. Pentecost, it says, you must bring bread made with yeast. It's got to be puffy. I want bread made with yeast. And what they would do is they would tear it, which I won't do to avoid the vacuum cleaner. They would tear it and they would fill it with oil. Why? Because oil and bread taste good. But also it was symbolic that God's presence wanted to engage leavened beings. The whole See, Pentecostals sometimes go, you've got to get the leaven out of your life for God to use you. Okay, and it's a good idea to not engage yourself with behaviors that belong to death, for sure. But the whole point of Pentecost is God is ready to engage your story, leaven and all, issues and all, flaws and all, brokenness and all. The God revealed in creation, scripture, and Christ is a God that's always humble enough to engage the broken story exactly where the broken story is and then move the broken story to a better narrative as the old hymn said just as I am this is Pentecost Pentecost is about God wanting to engage leavened beings exactly where the leavened being is and involve himself in that story to write a better narrative this is about Pentecost so every year they did this and then one year they did it on Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2 it records one instance of this, and it says they were all together in an upper room. Why? Because it was Pentecost. That's what you do. And someone would have had a leavened loaf of bread, and someone would have covered it with oil, and someone would have said, now the day of Pentecost has fully come. And at exact, that exact moment, it says the whole room covered them in smoke. 
Hulpa. And they saw tongues inside fire sitting over the top of their head. So the same exact thing is happening on the same exact day. The only difference is this time they spoke back, which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. But it didn't end there. Pentecostals are not simply supposed to be known for their tongue talking. Didn't end there. It says they went outside and they sold what they could to bless the poor in their community. Why? Because Pentecost is all about, I'm so moved by God's willingness to engage my broken story. I can't wait to engage their broken story, not because they deserve it, but because God calls them worth it. It's that. And it's found in Leviticus, by the way, not Acts 2. Check this out. Next slide. On the same day, you have to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. That's this is talking about Pentecost. Oh, and when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing amongst you. Oh, why? I'm the Lord your God, Anarchy, Jehovah, Elohim. God reminds them of his words at the marriage proposal. In other words, I want you to be so moved that I engaged you in your oppression and your slavery. I want you to spend your whole life engaging other people in their oppression and their slavery. Leaven and all, issues and all. Pentecostals should be so moved by the work of the Spirit of Christ in their world. And please, celebrate your spiritual language. Use your spiritual language. That's fine. But may we be so inspired by God engaging our life that we can't help. Pentecostals are not supposed to be known solely as the tongue talkers. Because you could be a tongue talking jerk. Okay? I know a few. All right? All right? Pentecostals are supposed to be known as being so aware and so inspired of the move of the Spirit in their life that they can't help but be the most generous group of people in their community. I want you to be the most Pentecostal group of people in all of Harvey Bay. What do I mean by that? Here it is in a nutshell. Pentecost is about this, the presence of God engaging that. It's about the presence of God engaging the leaven loaf and then the leaven loaf strongly considering how we think about our things. God engaged my life when I didn't deserve it. May I use my resources to engage other people's life not because they deserve it, but because God says they're worth it. Pentecostals should be known as, frankly, the most generous group of people in our whole world, which is a whole lot better than being known for being amateur predictors of doom. We should be out there. Remember in Acts, when Jesus ascends, says they stood there staring at the sky, as you would. And remember it says a messenger came and said, why are you staring at the sky? The one that went there has called you to do something here. May we never be the people simply staring at the sky for what God might do for me next, 
but rather may we be people who receive what God is up to in our world and then respond in kind by being the presence of God for people out there. May we be Pentecostal. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the beauty of the word Pentecost. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. I just want to ask a couple questions now, and they're rhetorical, so just answer them on the inside. Is there any leaven or brokenness that you're ready to hand to the presence of God? Knowing he already accepts you, leaven and all, issues and all, but you're ready to surrender a broken part of your story to the spirit of Christ to write a better narrative. I just want you to take 20 seconds and think about that. And if the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, I just want you to pray a prayer like this. Holy Spirit, I surrender this part of my story to you. I surrender this part of my life to you. The second prayer I want us to pray, and I'll say it first so there's no trickery, but if you're ready to pray it, I'd love for us to pray it together. Lord Jesus, may no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. May no one ever reject you because of how I presented you. May we be the most generous people in our world. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be part of your night. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I urge us all to surrender our brokenness to the work of the Spirit of God, not so he can hurt us or condemn us, but so that he could judge us, set us free, involve himself in our broken story to make a better narrative. And may we be the most generous people in our whole world. Thanks for letting me share the scripture with you tonight. Grace and peace. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.